From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. So if you were a giraffe or an elephant, you would go along in your world and you would consume things off of trees. And so we try to mimic as best we can what we call browse, which is edible tree material. This week on the show, Toby Foster talks with Barbara Henry at the Cincinnati Zoo. She's the one who figures out what each animal needs to eat, where to source their food, and the best ways to feed the animals to ensure that they thrive. And Daniela Richardson talks with Denise Jamerson, founder of the Indiana Black Loam Conference, about obstacles and opportunities for black farmers in Indiana. Stay with us. Come over. That's, that's Zoe. She's six. Tessa's 16. This is the sound of a giraffe eating romaine lettuce from my hand at the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden. I recently visited the zoo to chat with Barbara Henry, president of the Zoo and Wildlife Nutrition Foundation and curator of nutrition at the Cincinnati Zoo, and Angela Hatke, the zoo's publicity manager. Tessa likes to, like, she wants her food, so just she'll just rip it out of her hand. <laughs> A few years ago, I started following the Cincinnati Zoo on Instagram. Perhaps like some of you, I was drawn in by the story of Fiona the hippopotamus, who was born prematurely, too small to stand and nurse from her mom, and had to be cared for around the clock for months in order to get the chance to grow into the healthy hippo she is today. Barbara played a big part in Fiona's success and was responsible for creating a sort of hippo baby formula to help Fiona survive those uncertain weeks and months. The team surrounding Fiona shared her progress on social media with Angela's help, and Fiona's story became known across the country. She continues to make frequent appearances on the zoo's social media, often eating some of her favorite snacks such as watermelon or squash. Since then, I've noticed that the Cincinnati Zoo shares pictures and videos of all types of animals doing all types of things, but very often they are eating. Rico the porcupine is another star. He enjoys a variety of crunchy foods, and his diet includes carrots, sweet potatoes, kale, and celery, but corn on the cob seems to be his favorite. In addition to being fun to watch, the foods are often included in an animal's diet as a type of enrichment or to stimulate certain behaviors or instincts, such as foraging, hunting, or problem solving. I recently got the chance to visit the zoo and chat with Barbara and Angela about what it's like to come up with a diet for such a wide variety of residents and how the zoo uses food not only to keep the animals healthy and engaged, but also to connect with the public and spread information about their mission as a nonprofit. My name is Barbara Henry. I'm the curator of nutrition, otherwise known as the zoo nutritionist. There are not very many zoo nutritionists on staff in zoos in North America. Rarely do I get asked for interviews, so I usually try to grant them. (laughs) I was lucky enough to have a training program before I came here to go through it and be mentored. And so obviously everybody has to feed their animals, but not everybody has special training. A lot of it 
goes to the veterinarians to do, except for they have very, very little training of nutrition because they're focusing on a lot of other things. And so uh, there are 21 zoos, by my definition, who have nutritionists on staff. So that means you go and you do an undergraduate, uh, mine was in animal science, and then you go and you get a graduate degree of some nutrition training that then you can apply to exotics. Some of my colleagues in the different zoos have just a master's degree like myself, or some have a PhD as well. So it just depends. And every zoo who has a nutritionist on staff, they may have a different, slightly different role. It has to be what their zoo needs for them. I began my nutrition training in, at the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago, and after 10 and a half years, I was looking for a little bit of a change, and they had the position posted for the Sensei Zoo and Botanical Garden. So in July of 2005, they hired me to be their clinical nutritionist. What that means is they were wanting me to focus more on all the clinical side and less on, let's say, the research side. But because I've been here long enough, I have been able to show them that you can kind of blend those together. So it's my responsibility to come in and manage the commissary operations, which is basically where the food goes through for the animals, and then to set up and make sure that all the animals of every species across the zoo have a diet. And in 2018, we kind of switched that emphasis a little, allowing me to do more nutrition emphasis and less management emphasis, even though I still have to work together. So I work in conjunction with the keepers who take care of the animals, the curators who manage all the animal side of things, and the veterinarians who I work in that same department with to manage their health because nutrition and health are very much together. So when you're talking about originally it being more of the clinical side of things, are you talking about like physically getting and storing and preparing the food? A little bit. The clinical means, it, you know, making sure that we have a maintenance diet or an aging diet, if an animal's aging, or a growing diet, and less on researching things that go along with keeping the animals in a exhibit for folks to learn about and come and visit at the zoo. Early on, I learned sort of a process to go through when you're thinking about bringing in an animal of whatever species. And so I follow those same seven-ish things that are considered in my thinking of what an animal diet would need to be. And then you're right, I need to know what kind of foods are available, if there's an issue in the world with some food item, are there changes, are there better food items out there? And so in my course of my career, I've been able to learn a little bit, collaborate with other folks around the different zoos, maybe sometimes in our area of the country, or sometimes just maybe there's only a certain few special businesses that would make the foods that we would need to feed the animal. Um, so sort of kind of know what's going on. So not only on site, like day to day, does Dilbert, this expanded armadillo, need something special, or gosh, is there a new product that might be better in Dilbert's diet? And so it's, it's a little bit of collaboration on a lot of different things. I asked Barbara about the research and planning that goes into coming up with a diet for an animal who may be less common or unfamiliar to the staff at the zoo. Okay, so typically when we're gonna get an animal to our facility or we're gonna send an animal, we share 
what those uh, that animal has been consuming. So if I'm going to get in Dilbert, this expanded armadillo, wherever he came from, I'm going to ask them, what are they doing? And then subsequently, if I'm going to send Dilbert somewhere, I'm going to send that information out. However, in the bigger picture, say you're going to receive a species that maybe you've never worked with before. And you might think, gosh, that's not very common, but it can be. So for instance, we brought in to have in our night hunters building a ringtail and not a ringtail lemur, but a ringtail, which is a carnivore. And so you almost want to say it's maybe a ringtail cat. And so while we may have had one way, way before, because our zoo is very old, I had not ever worked with that species. So I wanted to do a little bit of research on what kind of what kind of animal is it. So yes, getting the information on what that animal was consuming, where it was coming from, was very important. But from the bigger picture, the way that I go about looking at a diet is I look at the species and the first thing I want to know is what would that species consume if it weren't in human care? And so I say, what's the foraging ecology of that animal? And so usually I'm doing some sort of research on my computer. Also, we know that domestic animals have been studied really closely. And so typically what we're doing is if we can find published articles on what the animal's foraging ecology was or foraging diet was, we can put that together with some of the animals that would be as closely related on the domestic side to the exotic side. And we can kind of come up with a target range of nutrients. So everything from protein and fat to maybe calcium and phosphorus to maybe iron or what kind of fibers does it need, depending upon what kind of species it is. Then we also look at sort of how does it need to consume its diet. So I like to know everything that's going in the mouth and then coming out the other end because you wanna make sure that the animal's digesting their food, whatever food you're giving them properly. And so in then in that process, you look at, well, is this animal gonna be in a group? So what's the group dynamics? Are there special needs? Do I need to have certain foods in there for training or to shift an animal or just to, um, we'll call mix up the diet. So what other what are the nutrients coming from the different food items that then I could put together? Then we also have to say, well, is that animal just maintaining? Is it in its adult life? Is it growing? Does it have special needs there? Is it aging? Is it is there a disease? Because we may need to have certain food items in there to help with nutrient absorption. And so the other thing is, is the animal healthy or is the animal sick? And so you can see that there's sort of these bullet points of what I follow in order to put together a diet. And it may seem like it's complex, but as you're doing it over the years, it becomes sort of sort of a process that you go through. And so it, it's just a natural thing for me to think of. So then once the animal comes, then you have to make sure the animal's consuming the diet. Um, and so that'll go along with as the keepers are feeding it, how is it looking? Or is it leaving too much food? Is it not enough or whatever? And then when the animal has a physical with the veterinarians, then they assess. Usually they take blood and they look at the blood parameters, you know, the nutrients there and the different things and also the weight. And so maybe they look at the teeth like you and I, we might go see the dentist. Well, it's the same type of thing for the animals here that we take care of. Of course, I wanted to know what the ringtail eats. It is a carnivore, and so there are certain companies that make what I would consider to be an analogy for humans 
a meatloaf. Um, we cook it, of course, but we make, you know, we mix meat and we maybe mix vegetables and we mix egg and then we maybe do a sauce, right? And then we stick it in the oven and we have meatloaf. And some people love meatloaf. Well, for animals, we feed them raw things, right? But there are a couple of companies out there that follow some really good standards and they put everything together. So it's a, we call it a meat mix. And so it's beef ground up with vitamins and minerals and fiber. And so that is pretty common in most every carnivore diet, but not sole food item that they would consume. So then we would find some prey items that they would also eat in their diet. So we would get in some frozen different prey items, say maybe a chick or a mouse, and then that would be in their diet as well. Barbara emailed me the specifics the next day. In addition to beef, mice, and chicks, the ringtails diet also includes quite a bit of fruit. 34.09% to be exact, as well as steamed eggs, mealworms, and crickets. The good thing about exotic animals is we don't know the exacts, but that's also a challenge because in some domestics and or even in humans, because you can blend in human nutrition for some of the primates um, because we have animals in our care for a very long time. And so they maybe wouldn't age as long perhaps in the wild because they have excellent care, right? So we sort of pull everything from domestic animals and humans and we put targets together. And then yes, I say, these are kind of where we stand. What does our diet look like? And say maybe our target for a domestic animal, maybe the fat isn't always very high, but if we know our animal is maintaining a good body condition, then we're fine with that. And so it's a guide, but it, maybe it's not an absolute. Okay, that makes sense. So you kind of adjust based on how they're actually doing Correct. as well as what's theoretically the best diet. Correct. And the body condition, we also have been working together amongst, you know, many facilities to come up with body condition scores. So if you have um, maybe a cat or a dog at home and you go to the veterinarian, they're going to they're gonna talk to you about the foods that you feed and the body condition of your pet. So we do that same thing. We have different body condition score charts. And so we may, you know, somebody in another facility may really have worked really hard on a cheetah body condition score or lion and so then they're going to share that information and so what they usually do is put together a chart and they say here's what you're looking for so they look at different parts of the body um, they usually look over the shoulders of an animal on the hips along the spine and sort of along the torso and we like to watch animals walk and see the body condition or maybe in a stationary space the other thing is we try to wear animals a lot so we can use both of those tools together to say, do we feel like the animal's in really good condition? Because they're only going to have a physical every so often. And so that's the third component is during their physical, if they're anesthetized because they're doing different things with the animal, they can also get their hands on the animal and then we can use that as the third tool. Since a lot of the animals at the zoo come from very different parts of the world, I asked Barbara if she has any particular challenges getting the foods that she would ideally like to feed the animals in her care. As the years go on, we see less available seafood for some of our animals. 
So in years past, you might have been able to have a little bit more variety for maybe the penguins. And so sometimes you see a decline. If you can grow your food, you might have a better time to be able to, to tailor it more to the animal. Some things we don't have the ability to do that. While sometimes um, folks are looking at fish, growing fish in aquaculture type of situations, it isn't for the amount of species and quantity of animals that we have, we are still collecting fish from the ocean. One thing that we have done, let's say in the last 10 years, is we have emphasized all across um, AZA institutions a higher amount of edible tree material in the diet. So if you were a giraffe or an elephant, you would go along in your world and you would consume things off of trees. And so we try to mimic as best we can with species that are edible, because sometimes they're not edible, and you need to be very cautious about that, what we call browse, which is edible tree material. And so we have put a, a bigger focus on how can we provide this so that the animal has the best animal care. We have other food items in their diet, but if we can combine more and provide different types of materials, it's going to be better for the animal. A quick note that AZA refers to the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. It's a nonprofit that evaluates zoos and aquariums based on animal welfare, care, and management. So when Barbara refers to accredited zoos, this is what she's talking about. One thing that surprised me is how much of Barbara's job comes down to the logistics of getting the amount and types of food that the zoo requires. She told me that during the pandemic, it became very difficult to find beef blood for the vampire bats, which was a big problem since it's the only thing they eat. When you look at the vampire bat, it's, it's one item. And if you don't have blood, we can't feed them. So you have to have a plan and then a backup plan and then another backup plan. That was probably the first time ever that we were like, let's plan a little bit further out because we had never really experienced that. And folks changed operationally locally. Um, and so then we just looked for sources that were more distant away. Um, they do exist. We just were really lucky to be able to get our food source for the bats locally. And we try to do that. We emphasize local. Um, sometimes we have been able to establish growing our own food, and we will continue to do that to be able to have our eyes and ears and on the exact on the foods. You have to Look at that critically. It's not just making the diet, right? I can tell you that I want to feed this to the ringtail or the expanded armadillo or the gorilla, but it's then being able to get those foods and seeing where those foods came from and looking at the vendors that we're purchasing those foods from. So we have put a really big effort, and we will continue to do that um, across the zoo for growing our own food. It'll be interesting because some foods are a little harder to grow locally, as I just told you that we get things from the ocean, and or a, maybe a special meat that's mixed in a company that's their whole sort of, they have several, we'll call them lines of meat, right? But that's their whole process. That's what their company is built to do. So sometimes it's a little harder for us to do that, but I, I'm okay with thinking outside the box and talking about how we can build it in and bring new things in every year. 
So why can't a vampire bat have blood from a different animal? Well, they can. I'm not saying that you couldn't. Um, when we were, when I was at Brookfield, I worked at Brookfield. We were going to open a vampire bat exhibit, and we hadn't had one. We'd had other species of bats, just not the vampire bat. And we were looking to obtain some bats from a university that were going to not be doing some research that they were doing. And they lived in a symbiotic relationship with chickens in their exhibit. Therefore, they would consume chicken blood because in the wild. If you have a vampire bat, it can live symbiotically with other animals. It doesn't bite into the animal and suck all of its blood out, despite the movies. That's not what they do. They would only take a little bit and then move on. So we could get other blood, but that isn't commercially available. So that's the thing. When we're looking at foods for our animals in our care, we are looking at commercially available things because we want it to be the best quality and safe. And so there are, sometimes uh, we cross into feeding the same thing we would as we would consume as humans. And sometimes we would only obtain those because they were made for the industry that we work in. So sometimes it's, it's just knowing what the products are and why they're there and then asking the right questions to those vendors, forming relationships with those vendors, um, and then sharing information among institutions. Collaboration with other zoos is one of the things that is most important to Barbara and seems to be one of the central tenets of her approach to nutrition. One way she does this is by serving on the Nutrition Advisory Group for the AZA. We as a group get together and share information and so I've been a part of that steering committee for a very long time being able to share information or work collaboratively with others um, to create documents that are useful information in nutrition and then also serve on say as an advisor for um, the otter species plan or uh, the colobus species plan. So I have a whole list of things that I've worked with over the years. So then sometimes I've been asked to teach the nutrition component of a workshop or write some document on nutrition that would then help whomever in whatever facility would want to learn more about. So the other thing AZA was putting together were manuals where they would have a chapter on nutrition and a chapter on reproduction and a chapter on uh, medical or a chapter on just basic husbandry. And then everybody works together to, to put those so that they're usable information. And then anybody would be like, gosh, I really want to know more about the colobus species. And so I can go and I can read this page document that say six or seven pages are on nutrition and so I work with others to do that as well. At this point I feel like I should say that I understand that not everyone likes zoos. The idea of keeping an animal in a cage is not one that I necessarily love myself, and to be clear, there are many quote-unquote zoos that are built for profit and entertainment and do not have the means to, or maybe even intention of, taking care of their animals. I also believe, however, that a reputable zoo puts an emphasis on education and conservation, and it's zoos like that actually the Brookfield Zoo specifically that gave me such a love for animals at a young age. 
I've also been a vegetarian for over a decade, and I still love visiting the Cincinnati Zoo, and I hope that it's clear by now that Barbara and the staff that she works with put a great deal of effort into taking the best possible care of the animals there. I wanted to talk to Barbara a bit more about the conservation and research efforts that are a part of the zoo's mission. That includes efforts to source the food for her animals locally whenever possible, and working with the AZA advisory group to find ways to more humanely and sustainably source their feeder animals. She is also the president of another nonprofit, the Zoo and Wildlife Nutrition Foundation, whose mission is to provide nutrition education and advice and to contribute to global and regional nutritional research programs. So you could do conservation more locally or you can do conservation globally. And so obviously Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden does both. Along the way, the person who was my mentor and my boss for a very long time, we lost her to cancer. And so upon her uh, passing, we put together a training program where we asked for donations and then a zoo has to apply to a grant and say, okay, so say I was the person who wanted to apply to this grant, I would have to say, okay, I'm going to commit to training this person. I'm going to follow the, these guidelines that were set up in, in her memory by the nutrition group. And then it could be awarded based on whoever else applies. And then I would commit to hiring and training for future zoo nutritionists. And so that was very important to our mentor um, and my former boss. And so it's been important to us as a nutrition group to be able to educate and get other facilities to agree that nutrition at their zoo is important. So basically training the future. Our mission is nutrition research, a small a grant for that, a small grant for travel for uh, somebody in nutrition to go to a meeting, and then that grant for training, and it's a two-year program, whereas the other ones are either yearly, a small amount, or every other year. So it's been a cool opportunity to be able to further nutrition, whether it's research, conservation. Um, we've been 10 years in, and we have a lot to, that we've been able to celebrate, but we still will be out there asking, you know, and figuring out donations so that we can keep everything going. But that is a conservation effort that we totally believe in. Um, we would love to be able to have research grant money to be able to, you know, award those to people who apply so that if they're trying to answer a small question or a big question, that they would have the money in order to do those projects. One of the things I was curious to talk to Barbara about is the idea of using certain foods to stimulate certain behaviors and instincts in the animals. Carcass feeding is one of the examples she mentioned already. In general, any diet, you would like to have that animal show natural behavior. And carcass feeding is just one of those things that for a carnivore would be able to do that. So in the wild, they wouldn't get that meat mix would they? They would be out hunting for their prey, and then they would, sometimes in collaboration, depending upon the species, have the ability to take down the prey and then consume the prey. So over time, we want to look at all the behaviors that we're trying to have our animals show, and that was one of them. 
Again, this became a bit of a logistical challenge, since most facilities are typically processing animals for human consumption, and Barbara wanted the hide and hooves left on. How do we do that and with the vendors that we have locally so that we can utilize product that isn't necessarily going to be consumed for humans? So right now we do feed goats as a carcass and we are exploring can we do deer in the future. Uh, we would do some testing to make sure the deer was meeting the nutrition and, and health needs. Um, so I've worked in collaboration with the veterinarians. But there are facilities out there who do have that or maybe have access to different types of carcass. Sometimes they might feed something whole-ish but don't have the hide or the hooves on and so it just depends on where they're located in the country. So is that something that's relatively newer? I think the bigger ones when I talk about um, frozen thawed prey, that that to me is carcass because it could be a mouse, it could be a rat, it could be a guinea pig, it could be a quail, it could be a chick. So, but bigger carcass pieces. So say the pack of African painted dogs, well, a rabbit's not going to work because there's too many of them. So you did need a bigger thing. So it was more complicated to find a bigger carcass from that perspective, but we've been feeding the smaller, what I would consume, uh, categorize as carcass as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So it's kind of just newer to do the larger Correct, the animals. larger. And some, some facilities have had relationships with vendors where it is even bigger than goat. And so it just depends on the relationships. It depends on the protocols that they have in place at their facilities as to what their philosophy is. I wanted to know some other ways that foods are used to stimulate behaviors. I had read some articles about food being used to convince a certain animal to take its medication, for example. Or, in the case of the Komodo dragon, keepers recently started burying some of its food to encourage it to explore its habitat in a new way. So my philosophy is the diet can be used in so many different ways. I don't care for the philosophy where, you know, this is the base diet and then this is the enrichment part of the diet and this is the behavior part of the diet or this is the, um, oh, I need this for medicine. I want to be able to look at the whole diet holistically and then discuss ways in which we can use those food items, whatever is needed, to elicit the natural behavior or to make sure that this animal gets medicated or to make sure that this animal shifts from one place to the other. And so I just try to work collaboratively with the keepers in order to do that. One of the more recent things with the Komodo would be to offer that larger piece of a goat and put it into the exhibit in a way that the Komodo would have to work to get it. Or we did the same thing with, say, the alligator or the crocodile. And so they would, perhaps in their natural state, they would be going along and hunting for something bigger. And so it was just providing it in a safe way and diversifying what you're providing. So if they were burying whatever it was that we were feeding, Hudo, that's the name of the Komodo. Today, maybe they were trying to get him to elicit the behavior that he would if he were going to dig it up and consume it. Say we want to change something. Even if we've been feeding the same thing forever and ever in a day, 
I am open to having the conversation to be like, well, hey, I'm looking for something different. Can What do you think about these items versus the items we're feeding? Or can we seasonally change a diet to show different things? Because maybe they would feed higher in one part of the year and lower in the other. You know, some bears hibernate. So in order to get to the hibernation state, that bear beforehand for months is going to feed a lot higher calorically and then for the time of hibernation would consume almost nothing and sometimes nothing. In human care, we can't feed them nothing, but we can try to put together a plan to follow a natural feeding behavior, and that may change. And so I've had lots of conversations where there were maybe we feed this snake uh, more food in these months and less food in, in these other months because we're trying to shift the way the animal would, would consume calories and or changes in their body mass. That's true for some species of birds. And they follow. It's sort of like they're less hungry or more hungry. And so as long as we're keeping an eye on their weight and their body condition, we can follow those patterns. That's not a problem. As I mentioned earlier, the Cincinnati Zoo became very well known after their work raising Fiona the hippopotamus, who was born prematurely in 2017. Barbara played a big part in Fiona's success story, and I knew I had to ask her at least a little bit about it, even though I feared she might be a little sick of talking about it. It also leads into the last part of our conversation, where we're joined by Head of Public Relations, Angela Hatke, to talk about the impact that social media, and specifically the animals eating their food on social media, has had at the zoo. It's funny because she is very popular. We do like that. We love people to come and see Fiona. Um, she was born prematurely as best we can estimate and needed to be reared by uh, us. Therefore, we needed to come up with a formula. We were putting together what the best information we could from what we could find in the literature that said, this is what are the components of mom's milk nutritionally, and then with the products that we had. Our colleagues at Smithsonian's National Zoo have a laboratory where, and over years and years and years, they have focused on the nutritional analysis of milk of different species. And so we collaborated with them in order to analyze a little bit of milk that we could get from mom because she was trained to come in to the scale and they were doing ultrasounds with mom. So she was already sort of set up to be able to then collect some milk. And so there is less information known about, in general, across every species, the milk uh, nutritional components, and then the changes in the milk over time. And so what those few samples helped us to do was look nutritionally at it, make some adjustments, and then test them out with her, and then being able to every day if we needed to tweak that information for her milk in order to get her to consume it, digest it, absorb it, um, and grow. And so it took a lot of people uh, as a collaboration to do that. And uh, I was just lucky enough to be the person crunching the numbers. <laughs> um, and then we felt it necessary to publish that information. So we did do that as well. Because sometimes 
people call us or we'll call somebody else and say, hey, we're expecting an armadillo or we're expecting uh, tamandua back before we had our first tamandua in many years. And if somebody else is uh, successfully hindered those, they share the information, we share the information out, and so we want to collaborate. Because why would you reinvent the wheel when you don't have to? It is way better to share that information and that knowledge and then take the best care you can. Angela Hatke, and I do marketing and PR at the Cincinnati Zoo. With Fiona, we were really telling her story every day. So every day in the beginning was a milestone moment. Like she made it through the night, she took her first bottle, she, you know, like took her first steps. So part of that really was sharing how much she was drinking. And there's one photo we have of all the bottles lined up because <laughs> she finally was drinking enough. And then, yeah, we just kind of kept sharing every single moment. And the keepers were really good about like helping to share that info too. So, you know, everything from giving her lettuce, that's her favorite. They, we've done taste tests to see which food she likes the best. And it is always romaine lettuce. <laughs> so, yeah, or watermelon. Yes. So any of those national days, like like um, National Watermelon Day or Halloween. We really like to give her fun foods that, of course, we ask Barbara to make sure it's even, you know, we've had requests like, it's pancake day, can Fiona get a pancake? She was like, no. <laughs> so you keep her safe. For Correct. All Sometimes we ideas. might go out of our way to make a healthy pancake <laughs> if we have a collaboration with a local place and so you know we are a non-for-profit so while we utilize obviously the money where people come in and pay as a guest we also have to take the best care of our animals and so we do with sponsorships and so sometimes we are asked by a sponsor to do certain things and we try to accommodate as best we can within the limit <laughs> so that we're not giving you know processed items or sh a lot of sugar so we have gone out of our way to whatever species mm -hmm. hippos is a big one if you asked before we had when i first came here we didn't have hippos and then every time you would ask the public what's one species that you don't have that you really want hippos came up a lot so Obviously, we put hippos into the Africa exhibit building module, and they are hugely, hugely popular. Ours just happened to be cute <laughs> and nationally known. So. Yeah, so we do like a birthday party every year for Fiona or other animals too, and Barbara helps a lot with that. Just kind of, how can we make this fun but still healthy and appropriate for the animal we're celebrating? So it's kind of fun. Yes. <laughs> Another huge uh, star is Rico, our porcupine, and he eats corn and celery and peanut butter and everything crunchy, and it seems to be a huge hit with his followers, so that's a really fun one. The keepers just had sent a video, and his big nose, and his, I didn't know he was a rodent until we started showing these. His teeth, you can really see, like, look like rodent teeth, so it's really cool to see him close up and the crunching, I mean, people always comment, like, I can't stand hearing people eat, but Rico eating is, like, 
the best thing ever. <laughs> so yeah, that's fun to get. The keepers have really great videos and help us really share the animal stories. So will you get like a like a text message from a keeper asking if they can give a, like a <laughs> ear of corn? Typically, they use the diet items. Mm-hmm. They, they have special foods in the diet for training or really is an enriching thing. So one of Rico's very favorite things is a dried banana chip. Well, that's just part of his diet. So we try to build into every diet for every animal species, things that maybe they aren't given all the time, but maybe they're rotated. And then those are popular things. The keepers are the ones really who are doing the video and wanting to highlight, whether it's a Galapagos tortoise or it's Hudo, the Komodo, or it's different snakes when they're out and exercising or where they're being fed, or whether it's Rico, the porcupine, who has followers on social media. So if he's taken off exhibit to change around his exhibit or repurchase exhibit, they have to post on social media that he's not going to be available because if they don't, some of his followers are very upset when they come to the zoo and they don't (laughs) see him. So I just try to meet the needs of everything. And sometimes it's you're only giving an animal something special once in a while, whether it's National Watermelon Day or Easter's coming up. So you will see a lot of animals offered steamed eggs that are colored by our wonderful volunteer crew because it's Easter. And so during Halloween, we give a lot of different pumpkins in a lot of different ways. It just depends on what it is. So we do try to meet the needs. And We all deserve to have special things every once in a while, as long as overall we eat a a good diet. My guests were Barbara Henry and Angela Hatke from the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden. To see some pictures of my visit and for links to more information, visit eartheats.org. This is Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Next up, producer Daniela Richardson has a story about her visit to the Indiana Black Loam Conference in Bloomington, Indiana. 24% of Black Americans experienced food insecurity in 2020, a number more than triple the rate of white Americans. In response, some have turned to agriculture to produce their own food. However, in the U.S., the life of a Black farmer is not an easy one and there are few spaces in which they are allowed to exist without issue. To me, it was the defining moment of, of seeing the black farmers decline around me. It's almost like they will become an extinct. The second annual Bloomington Black Loam Conference took place downtown in March of 2023. The Black Loam Conference is an annual event sponsored by Legacy Taste of the Garden and the People's Cooperative Market. The conference provides resources and opportunities for networking with Black, Indigenous, people of color and socially disadvantaged rural, urban, and community farmers. It was created in response to declining Black farmers and the ever-present racial inequity within the agricultural community. The event was imagined two years ago by Legacy Taste of the Garden, a farming operation in Princeton, Indiana. Legacy Taste of the Garden was founded by the Greer family, a multi-generational family of farmers dating back to the pre-Civil War era. Their lands are based in Lyle Station. Denise Jamerson, Legacy's farming operations manager, sat down to talk with me at the event. 
She shared some of her family's history and their reasons for forming the Black Loam Conference. I am a fifth generation farmer from Lyle Station, Indiana, which is the last remaining African-American settlement in Indiana. My father is a part of the Smithsonian National African-American Museum as one of the last remaining African-American farmers still farming land that's been in our family since pre-Civil War. Uh, so I grew up on a farm, been on a farm, and my son decided that he wanted to continue on the legacy. Hence, our company is called Legacy Taste of the Garden, and we do farming and produce. Denise and her family wanted to start the Black Loam Conference when they noticed that many of the issues her father faced as a black farmer six decades ago were the same issues her son faced as a black farmer today. My son decided he wanted to go into farming, and so whenever he decided to do that and we started working into the farming arena, it became very apparent to me that the same thing that my dad was dealing with as far as discrimination for black farmers was the exact same thing my son was facing as wanting to go into farming. So with that, we've been trying to make things better. And she soon learned that they were not the only ones taking notice of these issues. And in the same time, USDA, because of their history of discrimination, has been wanting to amend and create bridges to bring black farmers back, to help black farmers and do what they can do to start getting them more aware of the programs, um, getting them more involved in the programs, trying to connect with the black farmers. So with that being said, we bring in my husband. He's been a part of the community. You know, he's knowing the people, seeing the people, knowing the farming and stuff like that. Someone had reached out to him. We had a black person come in and start working into one of our local USDA offices. And from that, he connected him with another person with CCSI, which is Cropping Services. And they asked, can you do a conference with black farmers? And he's like, well, yeah. formation of this conference has also served as their way to combat food access disparity in neighboring cities and connect with other black farmers that many believe to be gone. Being in the community where they grow produce, you can't sell a whole lot. So we were like, well, let's just go to Indianapolis to the people we used to know as a way for him to be able to distribute his produce only to find out about the food deserts and the socially disadvantaged. And we hooked up with the people, black growers, black farmers that were in Indianapolis, which has grown to the other cities and stuff like that. So therefore we knew that there were other black farmers that are out there that they're saying they aren't there. So last year was the first year of the Black Loom. And it, to me, it was kind of a, like a bring them out. Let's bring them out. You said they ain't here, let's bring them out. Denise realized just how important it was to go through with their efforts after speaking with children in her community and teaching them about agriculture. The wake up moment is that when I'm dealing with kids that have probably never even dealt in dirt. So it's like, wait a minute, you don't even know where your food comes from. You know, along with seeing the food deserts, then you then that trickles to what are they eating? Because for me and my generation and even my kids, everybody talks about going home or going to the country and getting that good food from the country. Well, we've got a gap going on to where these kids have not experienced that. The Black Loam Conference also takes place in Evansville, Gary, Fort Wayne, and Indianapolis. This allows farmers to hear the different stories from different communities and come together locally to share resources and ideas.
The whole purpose is the different locations also is that you have different types of farmers and different types of scenarios in different communities. So what goes on in my community is a little bit different than what goes on here in Bloomington's community and totally different in Indianapolis in the urban community and Fort Wayne. So it's all different. So each conference is kind of tailored to that community and that community's needs. So therefore the conference is automatically different. The conference has so far succeeded in making an impact among farmers of color. Farmer Jenny Cho believes that the Black Loan Conference is a point of unity. I think it's speaking to a greater movement of not only like empowering underserved groups, but really kind of bringing people back to their own sovereignty as human beings to really kind of reclaim our divine rights to natural resources, to food and water, to not have a middleman or a government dictating what you can and cannot eat and when you want to. I feel like our society has kind of shifted in, a, in such a way where farming is almost looked down upon as like very menial thing to do, but I view it as the exact opposite. I think being able to cultivate the land that you're on and have a, a relationship with it is like the highest calling as human beings. Most importantly, the conference is highlighting Black farmers and acknowledging their existence and contribution to their communities as well as their struggle. Find out about black farmers. Black farmers are suffering. You hear about black farmers, but you don't really know what issues are going on with black farmers and the USDA. There is a reason that there was a lawsuit with the USDA. There's a reason that the USDA wants to try to amends with the black farmers. There's a, a reason that my son is still dealing with the things that my father did 60 years ago and being able to be a farmer. So. Look up, talk to the black farmers, find a legacy black farmer, somebody that's been farming as a profession and ask them and find out a way to support them because farming is very, very important to us, our culture and our history. For Earth Eats, I'm Daniela Richardson. Earth Eats producer Daniela Richardson was speaking with Denise Jamerson and Jenny Cho at the Indiana Black Loam Conference, organized and sponsored by Legacy Taste of the Garden in Lyle Station, Indiana, and People's Cooperative Market in Bloomington, Indiana. Find out more at eartheats.org. Earth Eats team includes Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Daniela Richardson, Samantha Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Harvest Public Media. Special thanks this week to Barbara Henry, Angela Hatke, Peter Woods, Jenny Cho, Denise Jamerson, and everyone at People's Cooperative Market. The show is produced and edited by me, Kate Young. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Universal Production Music and this week from Peter Woods. Our executive producer is John Bailey.